Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got uh, a, a bit of an unusual guest, um, a fella named Brian Fallon. And uh, I think probably most most listeners are familiar with uh, Mr. Fallon here, but uh, just in case, you think you could give a little bit of a just quick capsule biography for us? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, sure. So I am currently the founder and executive director of a progressive advocacy organization called Demand Justice. And we concern ourselves with um, judicial nominations and the federal courts. Um, prior to that, um, which is what I expect you're referring to, Ryan, is uh, in the 2016 <laughs> election cycle, I worked as the national press secretary uh, for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, I was there from beginning to end. Um, prior to that, in 2013 through 2015, I worked as the head of public affairs for the Obama Justice Department. And prior to that, for six years, I worked on Capitol Hill as the chief spokesman for um, New York Senator Chuck Schumer. Great. Yeah. And that um, I just wanted to make just make sure I didn't miss any of those because I think for 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 a lot of people it, uh, listening, it'll be a, a little bit odd to be hearing to be hearing you on on the pod. However, uh, I think it will be interesting. And um, well, the reason why is that you have a new proposal here, which is uh, rather uh, rather different than I w- I would say than than um, some of your previous work. So you've got a proposal here to change the way that uh, Democratic presidents nominate uh, judges and and justices to the Supreme Court, right? Um, can you explain to us like how that works, like what the proposal is exactly? Sure. So as I mentioned, um, the group that um, I started along with my co-founder, Chris Kang, who, by the way, uh, worked as the deputy White House counsel under President Obama and specifically handled judicial nominations for President Obama during that time. Uh, he and I started this group in, in May of 2018. And really the, the, the goal and mission of our organization is to create or provoke a state of alarm on the left about what's happening um, with the federal judiciary in terms of the extreme makeover that Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are conducting. And, but more than that, more than just trying to um, create opposition to Trump's judicial picks, we really want to help lay a foundation for thinking about and envisioning what the um, future should look like in a Democratic administration if we win the White House back in 2020. What types of people should we prioritize when it comes to filling judicial vacancies in the future? And we believe that you, we sort of need to think outside the box and how the next Democratic president approaches that task, um, not least because of what Trump has done in these last three years in terms of the types of people he's put on the bench. And specifically, what we're urging um, uh, in the coming, over the coming months with a particular eye on the Democratic presidential primary is to spark a conversation and a dialogue 
about thinking differently about the sort of default nominee that we look to when it comes time to put people forward, hopefully in 2021. Traditionally, in recent decades, um, you've seen something of a default pedigree sort of emerge in terms of the types of judicial candidates that get put forward by Democratic presidents. Primarily, um, they tend to have uh, they tend to hail from sort of uh, an exclusive list of uh, uh, schools, uh, Ivy League schools in particular. They tend to have all clerked for um, on the Supreme Court or for very prestigious federal appeals court judges. Um, sometimes they've worked as prosecutors, um, but but for the most part, the sort of most common criterion that you see across the resumes of people that get nominated these days is um, having a, a stint, having worked as a partner at a major law firm that mostly represents corporate interests. And um, this is true of both Democratic and Republican nominees. Um, and of course, it's not surprising that Republican nominees would prioritize those types of lawyers. Um, and, you know, under the Roberts court, we're now living through an era where the conservatives on that court are really, um, waging a assault on workers' rights and an expansion of sort of, um, uh, corporate, um, interests that we haven't seen arguably since like pre-New Deal. And they're emphasizing uh, arguments that have been out of vogue for the last several decades, but that they're trying to rehabilitate. And led by John Roberts, corporate America has really been ascendant. In recent years, you've seen the Chamber of Commerce have a win rate of 70 plus percent in the 12 or so years since John Roberts has been the Chief Justice of the United States. And the types of people that Trump and even before him, George W. Bush have nominated for the federal courts have really been people that subscribe to these arguments that favor corporations over working people. But the sort of dispiriting thing and the thing that we want to spark a conversation to try to correct for going forward is that by and large, there's been, you know, a similarity of, of background and professional resume on the part of nominees that get put forward under democratic administrations. What we'd like to see changes We'd like to say, okay, it's a given that Republicans are going to continue to nominate corporate lawyers that have, you know, an expansionary view of uh, corporate rights when it comes to legal arguments and disputes between corporations and workers. But for our part, when it's our turn to nominate people, let's not nominate those same types of corporate lawyers. Let's, in fact, make a priority of nominating lawyers that hail from very different backgrounds. Let's nominate academics that have studied the excesses of corporate power. Let's nominate labor lawyers. Let's nominate lawyers that have made a career at public interest organizations and that in many cases in these last few years under Trump have been you know, fighting important fights on behalf of progressive values, whether it's stopping the transgender military ban or seeking to oppose his politicization of the census. You know, we have strong progressive lawyers, brilliant lawyers who have clerked on the Supreme Court, who have gone to the best schools 
that are deciding not to take the big paychecks at corporate law firms, but instead to work on behalf of civil rights organizations, groups like the ACLU. And we can all you know, remember the first weekend of Trump's presidency when, uh, when there were cheers going up in Brooklyn outside the federal courthouse when the first injunction came down against Trump's travel ban. Well, that was a lawsuit you know, litigated by the ACLU. And in the years since the ACLU has fought Trump's travel ban, um, They've waged numerous other lawsuits against various Trump initiatives. And our, our point is, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's sort of held up as an icon of the uh, modern day Supreme Court for progressives, you know, she made her bones as a uh, litigator at the ACLU on behalf of women's equality. And in comments that she's made in recent years, she's sort of acknowledged that that background would probably disqualify her today because Republicans have so politicized work at groups like that. And we want to change that. So we want to have a conversation that says, let's deprioritize corporate lawyers. Let's look away from corporate lawyers when it comes time to nominate people um, in the next Democratic administration. And let's, let's instead lift up people and amplify people that are working at these groups that have been vilified by the right over these last couple decades. Let's amplify and lift up people who are fighting these arbitration cases in court on behalf of workers who are litigating on behalf of um, uh, organized labor in this country, and let's fight fire with fire and put people on the bench that will be true counterweights to John Roberts and the sort of corporatist views that he represents. Well, that sounds like a very laudable, laudable goal. What? Because uh, you said you mentioned start a conversation. Uh, do you have initial thoughts in the short term for how to get to that goal? What what tactics, strategies is your organization thinking of to to actually make that a reality? Well, the first thing really is to provoke this as a conversation, because um, it's, it really is the case that the left collectively, myself included until recently, have sort of slumbered through this decades-long project that conservatives have mounted to get us where we are today, where they've essentially captured the third branch of government. Um, you know, I think a lot of us, again, I include myself in this as somebody that worked in the Senate and viewed judicial nominations as sort of you know, uh, the sleepy, un, unappealing sort of when it came to um, the matter of how to prioritize floor time, it was always sort of an afterthought. Um, and, and I think that the reason for that is, by and large, the left has been rather complacent about the courts. Um, we tend to think of the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary as a whole as sort of mostly in general ending up doing the right thing, left to its own devices. We think of it nostalgically in terms of the Warren Court era um, and the court through the 60s and 70s as sort of, you know, standing its ground to desegregate schools and to um, find in favor of a woman's right to abortion and to find in favor of a even poor defendant's right to counsel. And all these rulings that sort of marked this period in the mid 20th century are sort of loom large in the minds of progressives. And we generally think that, you know, the court has been on our side and will always be on our side without needing to worry about it too much. And the reality is that that very era that sort of provokes so much nostalgia for many progressives um, is exactly what sort of spurred a backlash and a, uh, and set out um, conservatives on a decades long project of taking the courts over and yanking them to the right. And now with the confirmation of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, they've really succeeded. And that's been the capstone 
achievement of, of a three-decade-long march. And I think that not only are progressives sort of desensitized and complacent about what has happened in a general sense, I think they're also uh, sort of unfamiliar with the specific implications of that conservative takeover of the courts. What do I mean by that? Well, I think even if you, if you have, when we have conversations with you know, progressive activists now and speak to them about what's happening in the courts, we do get generally get like knowing nods when we talk about um, what Trump's nominees mean for um, people in terms of women's rights and reproductive rights and civil rights. And people tend to know that, the, that Trump's nominees and even Bush's nominees before them are bad on that. People are pretty steeped in the history of knowing how much evangelicals and the conservative movement have prioritized the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And certainly the Kavanaugh fight last year was very much fought on the issue of him potentially representing a fifth vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. People are very steeped in the history of knowing that the Federalist Society and, and, and uh, conservative elements on the right, it's especially in the 2016 election where Trump issued his shortlist to try to rally evangelical voters in particular, that there has been a sort of religiously motivated effort to take the courts back for the purposes of overturning Roe. I think what people on the left overlook is that really this project, the Federalist Society as an organization and the overall project that conservatives have long prioritized of taking over the third branch of government has been sort of a joint marriage, a joint fusing of interests by not just the evangelical religious motivated voters that very much want to overturn Roe, hate what the court did on same-sex marriage, etc. But hand in hand with that element of the Republican Party has been the corporate wing of the Republican Party, which almost around the same time when, when the religious wing of the party got um, really motivated over Roe v. Wade, you saw in the early 1970s a very concerted effort mounted by you know, a Chamber of Commerce-style Republicans to use the courts as a vessel to promote corporate interests. There was literally in 1971 a memo written by a then corporate lawyer by the name of Lewis Powell, who would go on to be nominated to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon, mm -hmm. who wrote a memo to a friend of his that worked at the Chamber of Commerce saying, hey, you guys are missing the boat. You know, if you, if you want to yank America back to, you know, pri prioritize, you know, the, um, the, the, the corporate uh, democratic ideals that, that we hold dear, you really need to pay attention to the courts and seek to um, have a court-focused litigation strategy. And in the years that followed, they pretty much adopted Lewis Powell's suggestion, the far right did, and you saw the Chamber of Commerce start its litigation arm in the years after that. You saw the Business Roundtable be formed to advocate and lobby for business interests in Washington, D.C. And most importantly, in my view, the Federalist Society sprang into being in the early 1980s. And the goal ever since has been to make the country safe for corporate interests by stocking the courts with pro-corporate judges. And, you know, we're all, people, people are just becoming familiar with the impact of that. I think that in this, so our goal to get back to your, the point of your question, I don't understand why today presidential candidates, when they are outlining what's wrong with Trump's America and what we need to fix if we regain power, 
we talk, we're very good at talking about a rig system. We're very good about talking about how corporate interests have taken over our campaign finance system. I think that it's a natural extension of that argument to talk about how they have hijacked the courts um, to make an agenda that would not be popular with the American people, that would be very hard to legislate through the Congress, achievable through the venue of the courts. And there's plenty of evidence to that effect. The rulings in recent decades have you know, pretty much been, uh, have represented an, uh, an unmitigated success for the Chamber of Commerce. And we should get our candidates talking about that. We should get them running against the court. You know, we are in, I think, you know, a sort of modern day equivalent of the Gilded Age. We should have people doing what Teddy Roosevelt did in 1912, running against the court. And so we want to get this on the radar screen of candidates. We want to get them talking about it. We'd love to get them introducing court reform proposals because we think structural reform of the court is necessary. But even short of that, they're, even if they don't sign on to court reform proposals, we know that they're going to have the opportunity to nominate some judges because there will be vacancies. Um, no matter who wins in 2020, there will be vacancies for somebody to fill. And, and we think that they should have to speak to that and tell the voters, the Democratic primary voters in particular, what their vision is for how they fill those types of positions. Yeah, so so maybe just to like recap a little bit here, like it is the case in the United States, as it is not in probably most other democratic countries, that like you can just basically legislate through the judiciary, right? Um and that has been how the Supreme Court has worked for most of American history. Uh from from sort of Dred Scott through uh, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson all the uh, reconstruction cases where they overturned all the civil rights legislation um, up through the, you know, 1935 when, uh, you know, they invalidated a bunch of new deal stuff because politics, basically, you know, there's really law doesn't enter into the equation. Um, um, but I, you know, so I 100% agree with, with, you know, this this idea and it's something I've written about a lot. I think a number of other sort of lefties have written about it too. That you know you got to be thinking about the courts. I remember just hammering Obama back in like 2013, and like you're being too you're being too timid with this vetting process. It takes too long. You got to get the most deranged communist you can possibly find. It needs to be 30 years old, um, and you know, water under the bridge. But I also think. You're kind of underselling the the radicalism of this this proposal that you're talking about, which is to say, basically, trying to instill in the minds of pres presidential candidates, we need to stop nominating big law candidates. And big law is, as you say, that that nexus of Harvard, Yale, Princeton undergrad, Harvard, Yale, Princeton law schools. Um, and all the big white shoe, you know, corporate firms, Covington and Burling, all the big ones. And just to be like, we need to look outside of that when we're picking people to be in, in, uh, you know, to nominate to the federal bench, because like the reality is like, there is an element of just naked corruption in that process. And I think the best example of this is the recent Kavanaugh hearing, uh, uh, a nomination and confirmation process with Amy Chua and her husband, uh, Jed Rubenfeld. Um, they are both uh, professors at, at, at the Yale Law School, I believe. Yeah. And she wrote uh, an, an article 
in the Wall Street Journal endorsing Brett Kavanaugh as being this feminist sort of pioneer before all of the uh, revelations came out about he had allegedly sexually assaulted this woman back in his his uh, early life. Um, and then later it turns out that uh, M- Professor Chua had a- allegedly uh, told her students how to dress so that they could catch the eye of Justice Kavanaugh when he, or Judge Kavanaugh when he was on the D.C. Circuit Court. And then later on, now that Kavanaugh has been appointed, it turns out her daughter is getting a clerkship with Justice Kavanaugh now that he's on the Supreme Court. So, like, this, you know, you're talking about really cracking into a really pretty awful, like, like sector of, of you know, how law is practiced in this country, right? Yes. So, um, absolutely. There's, like, so many reasons why taking a stance like this of saying that we're going to swear off corporate law firm partners when it comes to future judicial vacancies. And one of them is sort of what I alluded to before, which is, you know, Trump is putting forward people that are just unabashed, uh, pro-corporate judges. We need to, you know, meet the moment and nominate people that, you know, come to the law from a vantage point of workers uh, versus corporate entities. Um, but another part of it is to break up this sort of sordid ecosystem that exists within the world of elite lawyering. And you're exactly right to invoke the example that you did with Professor Amy Chua at Yale, who sort of, in a very transactional way, takes a public position as a so-called feminist, uh, liberal uh, professor at Yale coming out for Brett Kavanaugh speaking to his credentials and then lo and behold, her daughter ends up in a, in a, in a very um, enviable clerkship with that same judge that she endorsed. I thought you were going to invoke actually another example of the same sort of ecosystem, which was <laughs> that you may recall that around the same time, another of the validators that emerged for Brett Kavanaugh, uh, who wrote an op-ed, um, was a so-called uh, feminist lawyer who had clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. Her name is Lisa Blatt. She's the head of the Supreme Court and appellate practice at, at, at Williams & Connolly, which is a huge, big D.C. corporate law firm that has a big office in D.C., argues before the Supreme Court routinely. Lisa Blatt did clerk for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and her donation history suggests that she is indeed a Democrat in terms of her political affiliation. Um, but what is her day job? Her day job is to represent corporate interests like big tobacco, big pharma, and she routinely does so before the Supreme Court. Um, And so why is she endorsing Brett Kavanaugh? Well, because she knows that because of her day job, she's going to be arguing before him if he gets confirmed. And so it's a completely transactional thing where she has a complete conflict of interest based on the fact that she's serving her private sector clients well by endearing herself to a potential future justice on the Supreme Court that might be the fifth vote for, you know, many of the cases that she's going to be arguing. And we see that time and time again with the same people that come from Democratic backgrounds, they serve in Democratic administrations, they hold themselves out as progressives, and then they sell out when it comes to lending their name to backing you know, uh, Supreme Court nominees that they know on all the issues that progressives care about are going to be awful. So another example would be Neil Katyal, who who is the acting solicitor general under under Barack Obama, not there when I joined the Justice Department. He had already left by then. 
But um, after Lana Kagan got nominated to the Supreme Court, he was the soliciting solicitor general on an acting basis and um, and was a good member of the administration uh, during that time. And even now, he is still sort of known to a lot of progressives and MSNBC viewers because he's been an outspoken critic of President Trump and a defender of the Mueller investigation. He's one of those that believes that the president obstructed justice and thinks that the House should be considering impeachment. And so he's a very visible progressive in that sense. But what is his day job? Uh, like Lisa Blatt, who runs the Supreme Court practice at Williams & Connolly, Neil Cantiel runs a Supreme Court law practice at Hogan Lovells, which is another big DC firm. In fact, that job that he's in is the exact same job that John Roberts had before he got nominated for the federal bench. And Neil Cantiel's day job is again to represent corporate interests before the Supreme Court. And so in recent years, you know, everybody, a, a lot of your listeners uh, probably remember the Janus decision from a couple terms ago that basically gutted uh, or sought to gut uh, unions in terms of their ability to um, fund themselves. Two of the predecessor cases that led to that uh, ruling in the Janus case were argued against unions by Neil Katyal. The Epic Systems case in 2018, which basically said that workers you know, can be prevented from entering into class actions, that employers can compel them to sign forced arbitration agreements as a, as a prerequisite for their employment. He argued that case on behalf of the Chamber of Commerce and the big corporate employers that were trying to screw workers. And that ruling, 5-4, along ideological lines in the Epic System case, which is a totally anti-worker decision, the fifth vote for that ruling was Neil Gorsuch, Trump's first Supreme Court nominee, whom Katyal had very publicly endorsed just months earlier, holding himself out as a Democrat that nonetheless believed that Neil Gorsuch was qualified and should be confirmed. And so this sort of transactional relationship where Democratic and Republican lawyers alike cycle in and out of government and then go work at D.C.-based corporate law firms that argue before the Supreme Court, and they all socialize with the justices or formally clerked for the justices. It is a very insular environment that needs disrupting. It is, uh, Reuters did a study a few years ago that basically looked at the cases that the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court only hears about 80 or 90 cases a year. So it is a rare feat to even get your case accepted to be heard by the Supreme Court. And Reuters did this assessment, this analysis, where they looked at trends within the cases that the Supreme Court actually accepts for oral argument. And they found that you know, the Supreme Court bar, which has tens of thousands of lawyers that are, you know, part of the Supreme Court bar that are licensed to be able to argue before the Supreme Court, there's really only about 66 lawyers that get the vast majority of the cases accepted for the Supreme Court. And 51 of those 66, according to the Reuters study, were, were lawyers at corporate law firms that, that were arguing on behalf of corporate interests. So the fundamental system and the way that the Supreme Court operates it's shadowy, it's opaque to most people, but it fundamentally advantages corporate interests and Democratic and Republican lawyers alike sort of benefit from and thrive in that, that ecosystem. And Brian, that's why this is so radical and radical in the, the etymological sense of going to the root of the problem. It, I mean, even beloved figures at Yale like Akhil Amar, who's a, a liberal 
professor of law who's, you know, widely renowned for his liberal version of originalism and seems like a sweet, sweet man. I mean, just a, a gentle uh, human being. And yet even he wrote an op-ed uh, in favor of Kavanaugh in order to, it seems, hook up his students with clerkships as well. And so even if it's not that cycle of uh, corporate law corruption, there is even further down the spectrum of corruption, the simple nepotism of the elites who identify as liberals or as Democrats or are part of the Democratic Party. And so what's interesting to me about this is one, how, like you said, it's this, the system is, is, is deeply corrupt, but not transparently corrupt to people. And, and so we need to kind of uh, make that opaqueness transparent. But at the same time, it is a um, radical challenge that threatens the donor class and the establishment of the Democratic Party and Democratic uh, followers as well, because uh, I would say it's equivalent to proposing on the right to kind of stop the system from the federal society up of feeding into the system because that's a, the thing with the, 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 the conservatives is there's a perfect compatibility between their donor class and their kind of culture warriors and their corporate interests. They all are happy to work together. So this, however, seems to be something that is going to basically really threaten a lot of interests in the donor class and the Democratic Party. So, I mean, you have a lot of lawyers that, uh, you know, and lobbyists that help the Democratic Party. You have a lot of Democrats themselves that are, that are going to be threatened by this. So, um, I mean, good on you for that. But, but, uh, what, what, what's your response to the kind of challenge of that? Uh, I think you're right in identifying what we're up against, but, Really, a group like mine is never going to be successful in its overall mission unless we sort of tackle this problem at its roots. So what I mean by that is the very same culture um, within sort of elite lawyering that leads a neocanti, I'll say, to go from being the um, solicitor general in Barack Obama's administration to publicly arguing that Democrats should vote to confirm the guy that was benefiting from a seat stolen from Barack Obama. Like that same culture that leads him to sort of decide to act that way is the same culture that causes Democratic senators to vote for Trump's judicial nominees two thirds of the time. Like when I when I go out and talk to sort of, you know, run-of-the-mill progressive activists that are not lawyers and don't closely follow, you know, the politics of judicial nominations, and I tell them that, you know, the, the majority of Senate Democrats voted for two-thirds of Trump's judges in the first Congress, you know, in 2017-2018, they're like, what? Why? Like, why? Like, what, why would they? Why? And I, and it takes a little bit of explaining. It takes a little bit of explaining to say, well, you know, a lot of these senators, you know, they went to Yale Law School too, and so they might have been classmates with, you know, these these people, even though they're Federalist Society members that are anti-Roe, that you know, do not believe in the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. That you know, they have all these awful uh, views, and they're they're complete ideological extremists. But they went to the same law school as them. Maybe they clerked together for the same judge. Or if they didn't clerk together or go to school together directly, they have a donor, a friend that did go to school with them or clerk with them. And so it's, <laughs> network, it's this network of people that, that went to the same schools, that clerked for the same judges, that were partners together at the same law firms that whisper in the ears of these senators or send them, or send them notes and say, hey, I know that this is a Trump person, and I know he's a member of the Federalist Society, but I know him 
we carpool together. We play squash together. He's a really good guy. You should, <laughs> you know, he's really smart. And like, and basically it's, they're basically urging these senators to sort of like look the other way on the rulings that they know these judges will issue because they can vouch for them that they're nice to their kids or that they're a good basketball coach on the weekends. And these are not the, these, these should not be the bases for senators making determinations on who merits a lifetime appointment to the federal bench. And so we've been trying to shake up that culture and in every way, we're trying to advertise the fact that so many Democratic senators vote for so many of these Trump nominees, shame them on that fact. We're trying to, but then we also want to break up that culture and get rid of that sort of sorted underbelly uh, that, that underlies this whole system by putting some top-down pressure on these candidates that are running for president to make commitments now when they're listening to Democratic activists and they're listening to Democratic voters to make commitments now about the types of priorities um, that they will bring to bear when they're making decisions about who to nominate. Well, it makes even more sense in light of the recent Democratic debates, because had you had the conversation with these people after the Democratic debates, you'd say, well, look, I mean, they're basically Republicans on the stage right there, the way they talk about healthcare, the way they talk about the economy. Uh, they're just, you know, but forget the, the nepotism and, the, and the, the corruption. Uh, they're straight up capitalists in the sense that they're not on the side of the workers, you know, just it's, it's doesn't surprise me at all that they would want to support the nominees that would help the the side of the capitalists as against the workers, right? Yeah, and I don't think that we can like undersell how ambitious this project is in terms of exactly the types of jurisprudence that these recent nominees are trying to sort of rehabilitate and mainstream. Like, there's... In addition to the fact that it's just a sordid culture that we should want to disrupt um, for the purposes of enhanced transparency and restoring some sense of democracy to the, to, to the culture that has sprung up around judicial nominations, you know, the entire agenda that the Democratic nominee is going to be running on is going to be vulnerable before this judiciary that we're going to be left with post-2020. And um, the, they, when we say that they want to yank us back to an era that predates the New Deal, we mean literally that. Like the, the rising generation within the Federalist Society, the young conservative lawyers that are right now idealizing people like Neil Gorsuch, not Antonin Scalia. Antonin Scalia is like yesteryear's conservative icon. The new, the new sort of conservative icon is Neil Gorsuch because Gorsuch has views that are even further to the right than Scalia when it comes to some of the, some of the Supreme Court precedents that sort of underpin, you know, the workings of the modern day administrative state. Like the things, the working, the fundamental workings of government where Congress can pass a law that regulates workplaces by largely deferring to the Labor Department's expertise in terms of interpreting what should count as overtime and how to parse this or that regulation. They want to gut that and basically prevent us from enforcing regulations on employers in the workplace. Likewise with the environment. Uh, minimum wage, like if taken to its natural conclusion, 
this sort of line of thinking that is being popularized right now in the young lawyer set and that will convene at the Mayflower at a federal society gathering in Washington, D.C., if taken to its conclusion, it would fundamentally undermine like the whole logic behind minimum wage laws. Like the, the sort of jurisprudence that they want to bring back into vogue is very much an early, early 20th century line of thinking that said, you know what, if a worker and an employer want to enter into a contract together, they're both doing so voluntarily. The courts, the Congress should not get in the middle of that. They're both coming to that on equal footing. They both have, they're both equally powerful. They both, if they want to sign a contract to say that the worker can work 10 or 12 hours in awful conditions and sign away his rights to ever sue his employer if he refuses to pay him overtime, he can do that. And in, you know, in so that's uh, that's that it's basically Lochner is their softcore porn. They they just like stay up late at night rereading <laughs> Lochner over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, and, literally, and, there is a professor. There's this guy at Georgetown Law School, a token conservative law professor at Georgetown Law School. Is this guy Randy Barnett, who has literally written a book called Rehabilitating Lochner, and yep. his goal is to say that Lochner was rightly decided, and that there there does exist such a thing as a as a right to contract. And that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment says that if if a baker in New York wants to uh, employ somebody for 10 or 12 hours in sweatshop conditions in a bakery, in, which was the case in 1905 in New York, he should be able to do so. The worker can sign up for that if he wants to of his own free will. And and the New York state legislature should be barred from passing any types of statutes that attempts to um, minimize harms and, and, and workplace safety standards with respect to that worker. Because of freedom, for freedom, Ryan. Because of freedom. And so, and so that type of thinking is, like I said, it is an existential threat to everything from minimum wage laws to um, social security to let alone, you know, anything we might try to do as part of a Green New Deal or, or, or the like. And so this is something that we as progressives have to sort of steel ourselves to battle against. And one way that, you know, would be representing a concession in this fight would be to just nominate paler versions of the same types of people that Republicans put up for the federal bench. Like we don't need more people who've made their career helping enforce arbitration clauses against workers. We should have people that are arguing in court against the enforcement of those arbitration clauses. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> That's right, and and one thing I find particularly funny about the the whole the return of sort of Lochnerism, you know, and trying to make regulating the economy in any way that doesn't that benefits people aside from business illegal, is that it baldly contradicts the whole quote unquote right to work movement, which is all about banning contracts between consenting employers and unions to say that like if an employer and a union want to sign uh, a shop like a closed shop union agreement such that anybody who wants to join the the wants to become employed at this uh, location um uh, you know, they'll have to join the union in order to get that job. They'll say, no, we're going to ban that using federal power. But like, you know, l consistency and legal, you know, uh, 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 logic make almost no impact as far as I could tell on these type of decisions. It's all about ex post rationalization. Um, but a question I had for you, uh, Brian, is about, you know, the sort of, like like your journey here 
Because like, I think it's fair to say that going from, you know, Chuck Schumer to the Clinton campaign to working to, you know, ban corporate lawyers, you know, or sort of like try to push them aside from the judicial nomination process is, is kind it's, that's a trajectory, right? And like, I would guess that there are a lot of people that you know, or have met personally, who would be like, quite offended by this effort you're trying to put through, right? And so like, you know, what has inspired you to like, sort of, as it seems similar to Adam Gentleson, the the former Harry Reid chief of staff, who has become a fairly outspoken guy in a way that I think has has uh, annoyed some people over the last couple of years. What's behind that? Do you think Adam? I worked literally side by side with uh, during our time in the Senate. We had desks right next to each other uh, for about three years, and so um, to the extent that we've undergone an evolution, as you're suggesting, I think it's one that we sort of have experienced together. And I think what it's born of is something very simple, which is you know I look back with great pride on my time working for Chuck Schumer, and I look back with great pride sure. at my time working in the Obama administration. Um, in the in in the Justice Department, um, and the reason for that is like I was inspired. I came to Washington, um, you know, for all the sort of um, idealistic reasons that a lot of people do. And um, when Obama was elected, and I attended the inauguration, and um, both my wife and myself ended up going to work in the administration. I mean, there was a sense of uh, pinch me, like I'm. You know, I'm part of something that uh, a time in, in the life of this country that is that is going to be historic. And I do think by many measures, especially that very first Congress from 2009 to 2010, that it was historic in terms of things that we're getting through. But the other thing that we encountered and dealt with was, I think, an unprecedented level of bad faith being shown and displayed by by Republicans and um and I, I became frustrated, as I think Adam did, with the sort of hesitancy or outright unwillingness among Democrats to sort of acknowledge what we were up against and to um, reciprocate in kind and to be willing to um, sort of shed our sort of normsy tendencies in order to grapple with an asymmetry and a bad faith approach that was, you know, leaving us completely uh, ill-equipped to to fight on a level playing field for our priorities. And I saw, you know, us during the time that Adam and I were in the Senate, Republicans had just taken back the House. There was this completely bad faith argument being put forward about, look at the deficits that were running up under Obama. Look at, you know, <laughs> um, we need to cut Social Security to address the deficit problem that we have in this country. And there was and, and you just saw like you saw Democrats get hoodwinked by this argument. And people like Michael Bennett and Mark Warner would go on Morning Joe paying lip service to this whole argument. And Maya McGinnis would be held up as this god of like fiscal restraint. And Simpson Bowles was like the thing that even good liberals like Dick Durbin were sucked into like, you know, convening gangs um, to try to come up with some deficit reduction package. And it was like, be because we just wanted to seem reasonable and we wanted to seem, you know, responsive to... Uh, a completely manufactured outcry that was being generated on, uh, on a completely bad faith basis. 
and, and we became sort of sucked in by that. Likewise, you know, I know that there was, uh, well, I should just say, like that issue, that sort of dynamic repeated itself on issue after issue, where, you know, I worked for Chuck Schumer when he advanced uh, an immigration bill that made all kinds of compromises for the purposes of trying to prove itself in terms of its commitment to border security. And the bill went nowhere in the House. And so at a certain point, like you just have to throw up your arms and say, we need a different approach and we shouldn't be trying to, you know, water down our preferred solutions on economic issues or on criminal justice reform or on immigration reform because we think that we can meet the Republicans in some kind of theoretical middle. We should argue for what we believe and take it to the public. And when polls come back that show that our positions are more popular, we should fight for them rather than, you know, cave cave preemptively. And so I think that you're seeing that sort of frustration play out in terms of demands for, you know, calls for eliminating the filibuster, for uh, people to get serious about impeachment towards Trump, because I think there's both an ideological dimension to this in terms of wanting to see Democrats fight a little bit more aggressively for proposals that might have been deemed as too scary because they're too lefty in the past. But also there's sort of more than ideology, more than ideology, there is also just sort of like a show me some firing ability. Yeah, that's the thing, Brian. So so you, you would know better than anyone. And, and so I, we have our ideas, but I want to ask you because, you know, for years, it seems like the Democrats are the are the subs to the doms of the uh, of the Republicans, <laughs> if, if I may use a BDSM uh, analogy. And yet, you know, because certainly they don't actually trust Mitch McConnell, right? Like, I'll take his word. He's an honest, you know, straight dealing guy. And, and so I think, okay, is it cowardice? What's the deal? But then Pelosi and Schumer and the establishment seems to have a lot of guts when they fight the left. Like when, when the squad causes trouble to fight for these causes, they certainly have a lot of guts to go against them. So then it, then it, you know, that just brings me back to moneyed interests as, as the explanation, or they're really drinking the Kool-Aid in some way that is deleterious. What, what, are, what of these various possible causes for you best explains the intransigence and the cowardice, uh, against the right, um, in favor of corporate interests and then the ability to screw up some courage to take on these youngsters who actually try to push left? Well, I think that, uh, um, some of what you invoked there is true, and you know I, we're recording this on a day that I woke up this morning to a, a report um, about how revealing that you know Third Way accepted money from the Cokes to argue <laughs> to, 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 to argue uh, for free trade, and to, uh, uh, and you know I, I my response to that was like yikes, and but. You know, Third Way hosts many a, a confab that attracts, you know, large swaths of uh, the Democratic members of Congress. And so there, there's certainly an element to that in terms of moneyed interests having sway in D.C. But I also think I don't think all of it is 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 sort of corruption at work. I think another aspect of it um, which is sort of, you know, seedy in its own way, but not it's not it's not sort of corrupt in the sense of corporate interests that are showering people with donations and having sway that way. And that is in Democratic Party politics today, there is a ruling class of political consultants who who's, who will never 
go out of business for urging a cautious middle of the road centrist approach. <laughs> yeah. It is always safer for somebody interpreting a poll um, or giving advice in a meeting to to a senator or or a House speaker or a presidential candidate for them to urge them to proceed carefully, for them to not sign on to a, you know, a provocative proposal um, and, to, and to sort of suggest a middle of the road approach. And that's why I think, you know, what, one thing that the right does well is it sort of has collapsed its movement building infrastructure with its electoral infrastructure. And they work hand in hand. And the base mobilization strategy that defines their electoral approach works really well with their sort of movement building infrastructure where, you know, and that is what causes like a Donald Trump to just naturally fall back and revert to always prioritizing his base and presenting undiluted, you know, uh, red meat style proposals that he knows his core supporters will love. And they've over time, the Republican Party and under Trump in particular have conditioned the political media industry to sort of cover that as savvy and sound and smart that he's that he's really juicing his base. Whereas if Democrats ever do that, it is viewed as like they're lurching to the left and woe be to them in the general election. And <clears throat> and you're seeing it, you know, in recent weeks, whether like with people like Rahm Emanuel writing op-eds, urging caution, uh, urging <laughs> urging Democrats to, to not feel the pull to, to please the so-called uh, Twitter portion of the Democratic Party, um, as if like the, the set of Morning Joe is a more you know, astute window into the pulse of the electorate writ large. So I think a lot of what breeds the sense of caution and, is the fact that the consultant class in this town that is wired and paid to think in terms of short-term two-year election cycle windows is always going to urge caution and is always going to is never going to endorse any sort of ambitious approach to anything. Um, and you really do have sort of a generation of leaders in Washington right now that came of age during the Reagan era, and for them, they're starting. It's starting to break through, but it's still not second nature to them to think that, hey, 70% wealth, you know, marginal tax rates on the super wealthy is actually popular. And we don't have to worry about being tarred as tax and spend liberals. Or we can argue for repealing mandatory minimum laws and not be tarred as soft on crime because criminal justice reform is popular now. Or, you know, we can take a humanitarian first approach to immigration policy in this country uh, and not worry about um, and, and, and not just crouch and, and constantly fear of being portrayed as, as open borders Democrats. Um, hey, gun safety is actually popular right now. And even a majority of Republicans support background checks. So we don't need to worry about the NRA anymore. Like there is evolutions in terms of the public's mood on some core issues um, that have that serve our side and that should cause our politicians to feel ambitious and gutsy and bold. And they're, and they're, it's, they're just, they don't have the muscle memory yet to think that because they're conditioned to think that Reagan, Ronald Reagan going around talking about welfare queens and Willie Horton ads is still sort of like the controlling mantra that dominates American politics. Yeah, I think of um, 1964, right? Uh, 
you know, Barry Goldwater gets absolutely stomped by Lyndon Johnson in the election there. He loses by like 21 percentage points or something. And uh, conservatives, you know, they, they took their losses. They were unhappy. Oh, our favorite guy uh, lost. But they, they just like, you know, licked their wounds, got back up again, and just kept on pushing. And in 1980, they get one of their own in the White House, right? And in 1972, there's a sort of inverse that, uh, you know, McGovern, who is like kind of a lefty, but he's more establishmentarian than people think. Like he was really connected with a lot of the, uh, you know, with JFK and and so on. Um, He gets stomped by about the same margin. And like Democrats have been learning that lesson ever since. Um, What 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 do you think, you know, aside from your proposal about uh, uh, you know, changing the way that the type of people that are nominated to the bench, like, how do we change this culture? Do you think to sort of bring back some of that FDR, that fighting spirit, like, like the way that it's funny how how Harry Reid, despite being, you know, I'm from Utah, um, and you know he's Mormon, so I, I, I uh, uh, I recognize that even if I don't share his his beliefs there. Um, him being like somewhat conservative, but he was a fighter in a way that that is like almost it seems quite rare aside from the sort of new generation that really haven't gotten any seniority or power yet. Like, how can we bring that back in your view? Um, well, I think that a, a, a few things um, need to happen. Um, I think that Harry Reid, he's always had a fighter's instinct. He began deploying that fighter's instinct on behalf of, you know, sort of in an unabated way on behalf of progressive causes, I think right around 2010 where he had a a very close race um, and he won based on a strategy that really um, centered the rising uh, Hispanic population in Nevada and championed uh, immigration issues sort of unabashedly. It it struck some people as odd um, because there's such a high... Uh, white non-college uh, percentage of the electorate as well in Nevada. And so it struck a lot of people as politically risky. Um, but that Reed machine that is now renowned and that John Ralston talks about all the time was really at work in 2010. And I think it bred in him a confidence that there was a logic and a wisdom to hugging your base and not running away from and fearing your base. And um you know, and I do, you know, I, I don't want to be accused of um, arguing in favor of a strategy that only focuses on mobilization. You know, there's this whole, you know, running debate out there about mobilization versus persuasion. And, you know, there's some persuasion that I believe still can happen. Um, but I think that people forget that, you know, in addition to the fact that Hillary Clinton in 2016 you know, didn't succeed in peeling off as many white suburban college educated voters as we hoped. That was one ingredient to her defeat. But another ingredient to her defeat was we didn't hit our marks in terms of young people and people of color that we were expecting to in in important battleground states. And so when we're assessing electability with respect to a candidate like Joe Biden, you can't just measure it based on his ability to appeal to the archetype of the 
non-college white guy, MAGA hat wearing uh, guy at the truck stop. You have to measure it also in terms of, will he be able to inspire that 26, 27 year old African-American that didn't turn out for Hillary to turn out this time? And that to me is as important a measure of electability and a conversation that's geared around figuring out, you know, how do I wage a campaign in a way that is inspiring to that voter? that we need to centralize that discussion as much as we obsess about or more than we obsess about uh, all these thousand and one profiles. Or, or, just, uh, or just inspiring, just inspiring period, Brian. I mean, you, you have, I, there's a lot of ways to slice and you would know better than, than us um, why the election went the way it did with Trump, but turnout wasn't good. People didn't show up, right? They stayed at home. That was one of the big things. And, and just generally as Elizabeth Warren deftly, um, you know, basically killed John Delaney and, and Wikipedia reflected that. Uh, so wh- why, right? Like, wh- why do you go to the effort of running for president to talk about what can't be done and what you don't want to fight for? And it seems like the, the left is, uh, at least with, with Bernie and Elizabeth Warren trying to get at least some people who are willing to just full throat defend the working class, defend people that are oppressed, uh, the dispossessed, and, and fight on principle, put out bold ideas and, and just not triangulate and just kind of go for it. That is what inspires people, right? You know, it, it yeah, seems like that, agree, that's, that's missing. missing. I agree with that. You know, I've been struck by the fact that many of the same pundits and voices that criticized Hillary Clinton in 2016 for being uninspiring or not breaking through on economic issues, which I think was unfair. People can disagree or disagree with that. I think it was unfair. I think she talked about it plenty. <clears throat> but those same, but whether you agree with that or not, there was plenty of criticism to that effect in the aftermath of 2016. Many of the same people making that criticism are now the same people that are criticizing Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders for going too far. There are actually, <laughs> here, are two, here are two candidates that actually are making a name for themselves on economic issues. They are breaking through on whose side they're on in terms of who they want to make the economy work for. And now the criticism is that they're going too far and that they're breaking through too much and that it might be a little bit too scary. And so to me, that's like the, the best evidence that you can have that, um, that it's a completely contrived criticism uh, uh, in 2016 of Hillary Clinton and that it's also overbaked now with respect to Elizabeth Warren like, and, and Bernie Sanders. The, presumably the only thing that would satisfy these observers is to have some kind of milk toast in between, you know, set of policies that I agree is not gonna be inspiring come general election time. I think the other thing that I took away from 2016 with respect to Trump's success is if you wanna be known for, in today's era of short attention spans and, um, and constant distractions in the news cycle and the inability to break through on anything, um, more or less, it really pays to campaign in and brand yourself in bold brushstrokes instead of trying to dabble or be too yeah. be too fine. You almost need to go to excess if you want if you want the essence of your argument to sort of be to filter down. You almost need to go to you almost need to exaggerate on purpose or or. Uh, argue for something that is intentionally provocative with the hope that the essence of your argument will at least distill down and be received by people. And so to, in Trump's case, 
he did it in a way that was super cynical and awful for our politics and our public discourse. You know, he basically decided, I'm in a field of 16 Republicans. I want to be thought of as the most, you know, the toughest person on national security and terrorism. So I'm not going to just say that I'm going to like prosecute these um, Muslim terrorists. I'm going to say that I'm going to ban them from even coming into the country. And like people like, whoa, Jeb's like, whoa, like Ted Cruz is like, whoa, I can't, I was never going to say that, you know, that's too overtly racist. That's like, that's like, <laughs> you know, I can't go that far. And then like yeah. Trump, is, Trump is beating them on national security. Same on immigration. It's like, all right, I want to be the toughest, most badass mother ever in this field. On You can say motherfucker, by the way, on our podcast. It's fine. <laughs> it's okay. What can I do? It's like, I'm going to build, I'm going to build a wall and I'm going to call them all rapists. Brian, you're touching on something that's, I mean, this is a, a brilliant point. So in my mind, if you're, on a, if you're a Democrat and you want to say, hey, I'm in this for you, I, you know, if you want that sort of overall vibe to translate, then going around saying that I want to get rid of the insurance company's role in healthcare and I want to, you know, um, put the pharmaceutical companies out of business for profiting on you know, insulin and everything, life-saving drugs. Like to me, people, yeah, if, if pressed and if, if a pollster question is put to them, you know, it might, it might produce a certain type of answer one way. But in the, in the long term, where people are, are paying very scant attention at any given point, the, the broad sort of sensibility that is probably taking hold about that candidate that's arguing for that is that they stand for me, not for the big companies. We're not yeah. campaigning in a way that errs on the side of leaving that impression, as opposed to trying to come up with a tax credit that doesn't leave an impression. <laughs> what you're saying is really interesting because I've never thought of this, but Trump in a way is um, someone who achieves success through utopian demanding, which you think of typically as a leftist approach to politics. But I mean, it's really dystopian demanding, but the utopia of the racists, the white supremacists, and those that uh, would love a wall and would love to ban Muslims and would love to, you know, uh, pretend that trans people don't exist. And, and, but, but what you're pointing to is a politics of his, which eschews the, the reasonable in favor of, of the, the utopian for, for them. And so there's, there's something about making a demand or a claim, even if you don't achieve it or if you can't achieve it, that, uh, resonates with a base, with, with people who share that demand and that, and that desire. Uh, and that itself can galvanize support for moving towards it. And that, and so the left, can't have this technocratic neoliberal, you know, focus on process and efficiency and, and not remember that we're facing a moral evil on the other side that has a dystopia in the, in the face of climate change, in the face of, um, kind of the, the, the disaster that, that, that neoliberalism and late capitalism has on wealth inequality. Uh, the left needs to have the kind of balls, frankly, to make kind of a mirror utopian demanding and just go go all the way with the kinds of things that illuminate what's really at stake. And I would add another another sort of takeaway to um, Trump's sort of penchant for campaigning on utopian demands. Um, it also has the side effect of convincing people of your genuineness Okay, Trump is the biggest bullshit artist around. He's a liar. Yeah. He lies all the time. But his willingness to sort of like provide the hundred proof versions of Republican policies, the sort of like undiluted, unfiltered, pure racist sort of red meat, 
it even it certainly drives up enthusiasm among the people that really believe that and want that. But then even to to other people, it says, well, geez, he's willing to say such, you know, politically incorrect things. He really means what he says. He's, you know, he's authentic. And people gave, we would see, we saw voters give him credit for like, quote unquote, telling it like it is, even if they, even if when asked whether they agreed or not with his particular positions that he was espousing, did not want to be seen as supporting some of the racist stances, they gave him credit as a personality, sort of as a, as a human being, they gave him credit for having traits that they want to see in politicians, which is a willingness to tell it like it is. The lesson to be drawn from that, I think, is in addition to campaigning in bold, vivid strokes, in addition to the benefit of, you know, it, it, the essence of what you're stand, standing for filters down and you get credit for that and you get branded in a good way with, in the way that you want with the electorate. The other benefit of it is even if people don't agree with you, they at least give you points for authenticity, which is like one of the frequent frames and uh, criticisms that gets leveled against Democratic candidates, uh, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, that they're in, quote unquote inauthentic. And it's often an inarticulable criticism in terms of being able to put their finger on it. But one way to sort of blunt that or make that inapplicable is to be willing to take stances on things that are provocative, that attract criticism, that inspire people for better or for worse, that inspire strong feelings on both sides of the issue, because people sort of intuitively give credit to that person that if you're willing to stake out a position that comes with some criticism, that makes you the focal point of attacks, then there must be some authenticity to the fact that you really genuinely believe that. And I'll give you points for that, even if I don't agree with you on the underlying issue. So you don't, you don't hear anybody criticizing Bernie Sanders or, or Elizabeth Warren for being inauthentic. Like, and that is, and that is actually a valuable fact about both of them when it comes time for a general election and when you're trying to measure somebody's electability. Yeah. Well, that's probably a good place to, uh, to tie things up. Any, any last, uh, comments, things you want to plug? I know there's a Atlantic article about this, uh, uh, appointments proposal. We'll link to that in the description of the episode, but anything else? Um, no, just we got we touched on it uh, ever so briefly, but you know, in addition to trying to phone in a discussion about what types of nominees the next Democratic president should prioritize, I also think we really need to get serious about having a conversation about structural reform in the court because the reality is, you know, <clears throat> we have these ideas that we want to mainstream about um, what types of people should be nominated in the future. The reality is, really, the only vacancies the next Democratic president is going to have is you know, restocking Obama and Clinton nominees that decide to take senior status when there's finally a Democratic president. But there's not going to be an opportunity to fundamentally alter the composition of the federal bench because Trump is going to leave us with, you know, so much of the judiciary remade with 30, 40 something year olds. So realistically, if we ever want to reset the equilibrium, restore some kind of sense of ideological balance to the judiciary as a whole, we're going to need to think about expanding the size of the courts, term limits, some things that would, you know, undo the wrong of the stolen seat from Barack Obama and bring some orderliness to the process and depoliticize the confirmation process so it's not a gotcha where people can rig it and time their retirements on purpose to help one party keep the upper hand over the other. Oh, would, would yeah, you would you would you a, talk a, talk a bit more about that? I mean, that's a lot to hit us with at the end there. But talk just a, flesh <laughs> that out just a, a little bit more if you don't mind. If you have the time, that sounds very important to understand for our audience about what. So ideally, what 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 could we do? What's what what uh, what needs to happen? 
Well, this is a conversation. There's been proposals out there for a while, but they haven't really gotten a lot of attention except um, following Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the court, because I think there was a sense that that process was you know, conducted in an illegitimate way, that there were all kinds of questions about his fitness, and yet he was confirmed anyway. And, and there was a sense of like, that the window has now closed for us to be able to do anything about it. And they've now locked in a 5-4 majority on the court forever. And to some extent, they're right. Like, Clarence Thomas is in his early 70s. He doesn't necessarily have to retire anytime soon. And everybody else is, is going to be around for a while, too. And so unless we want to consign ourselves as progressives to a court that is fundamentally rigged against us for the next 20 to 30 years, we need to think bigger about, like, what we do about it rather than just hope that through fate, you know, some vacancies arise in the normal course of things in an opportunity that gives us the chance to reset things. Because, you know, it is going to be a steep enough climb. So court packing, is that what you mean? Well, I think the way that I describe it is that Trump has already packed the courts and now it's just a matter of whether we're going to do something to mitigate the harm that, that, that has happened there. People forget, okay, in October of 2016, when everybody thought, including myself, Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president of the United States, Senate Republicans were openly going around already, John McCain, the late John McCain, Ted Cruz, going around openly talking about how they were going to keep that uh, Scalia seat open for the four years of Hillary's entire term. Because <laughs> they were not, and so they were content to have a court that was only eight justices in number. And likewise, in the D.C. Circuit Court, before Harry Reid went nuclear in 2013 and got rid of the judicial filibuster in order to allow Barack Obama to fill three seats on the D.C. court, Chuck Grassley actually introduced a bill in the United States Senate to permanently shrink the size of the D.C. Circuit to try to prevent Barack Obama from even having any seats to fill. So Republicans have been perfectly happy to tinker with the size of the courts at both the Supreme Court level and the lower court level whenever it's suited their purposes. One of the the current head of the Federalist Society wrote a paper a few years ago suggesting that Republicans, you know, expand the size of the federal judiciary by a couple hundred seats in order to give themselves a fighting chance to populate it with conservatives. Now they have that with Donald Trump. So they're not arguing for it anymore. But there's been complete, as with so many other issues, there's been a complete asymmetrical approach taken in terms of how much Republicans have been willing to upend norms and um, play dirty to wrest control of, in this case, the judiciary. Um, and we're going to have to counter that or, we're, I mean, it's sort of insane to think that we're going to be spending every June for the next 20 to 30 years, like hoping and praying that John Roberts is reasonable. <laughs> balls and strikes, baby, balls and strikes. That is so absurdly <laughs> defeatist an approach to take. So we need to have like an, an affirmative proactive plan for what we're going to do to counter the fact You know, Mitch McConnell's been quite open. He said, why am I confirming all these judges? Because we want to move the country, quote unquote, further to the right through the courts. And like, are we just going to pretend that this is balls and strikes and that these are originalists (laughs) just interpreting the text? Or are we going to acknowledge that the courts have been politicized and we need to do something to fight back? Make the courts make the courts political again for the the left. (laughs) You know, that our, you know, we could have a whole nother hour long interview about this. But in general, the courts are not going to save us. It is really the ahistorical exception that Warren Court era that progressives right. are so That's far. Right. For the most part, the courts have not been the tip of the spear in terms of affecting progressive change in this country. They've typically been lagging indicators, not leading indicators. Yep. And, and so we'd be better off with a with a court that was sort of right sized in terms of its uh, in terms of its power over our democratic life 
Um, but right now we've sort of been willing to sort of allow the Supreme Court to have this outsized role in our politics today. And, and we've completely conceded um, that branch of government to the, to the Republicans. And I think that my job as somebody that's trying to sort of pull the alarm bell on this is going to be made easier, unfortunately, in the next two to three years, because I think that now that they've got their five reliable conservatives on the court, they're going to start harpooning all their white whales. We're going to start getting decisions that are really going to make the court an issue. Mm. Roberts is trying to guard against that. He's trying to, he's trying to be, you know, um, politically astute in terms of picking his battles. And that's why I think you saw him side with the liberals in the census case, because it was just too much at one time to do gerrymandering and that. Um, so he's going to continue to be crappy, <laughs> but the trend is going to remain the same. The overall trajectory is a very bad one. And it's something that we need to get organized around. So what's the best case scenario? Yeah. You, you get a, a lefty president, you, you win the Senate. What, what is your vision? You wave a wand. What, what could happen to change the trajectory? Oh, well, I mean, the best case, like literally the best case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. All right. Everything goes right. We get a Democrat elected president. We win back the Senate, which is going to be a tough trick. Okay. But we win back the Senate and then, you know, pick your, pick your issue. I don't know. What, what, is, what, is your guys, what, do, what do you guys say is the number one thing that that Democratic Congress should act on in, in the winter of 2021 when we first come into power? Is it election reform or climate change or... Whatever it is, you're going to have to break the. You're going to have. Yeah. I would do uh, election reform, D.C., Puerto Rico statehood to make the climate change bill easier to pass. Right. So, but for even that, you're going to need to. You need going to need to get rid of the legislative filibuster. Yep. Yep. So, so, and I've heard so many people say, well, you know, we can't talk about the filibuster now. Like, wait wait till you get power. It's like, that's absolutely wrong. (laughs) It's absolutely wrong. We do not have the votes right now to get rid of the filibuster. You need to, we need a Democratic president to get elected, having campaigned on it, to put pressure on the likes of Mark Warner and Chris Coons and, you know, not even the Joe Manchins, but just some of these people that are from reliably blue states that will not support it if the vote was taken right now. You're going to need pressure on them. You're going to need somebody that's talked about it for a year and a half and completely socialized the concept. So you're going to need to get rid of the filibuster in that first few months. And then I agree with you, prioritize D.C. statehood, suddenly get two more seats, Puerto Rico, if they want it. We still have to take care of the small matter of deciding what the population of Puerto Rico wants. But assuming you could do that, that's four seats right there. That gives you breathing room for things like climate change, democracy reform that I would have include not just campaign finance reform, but also ethics reform, um, anti-gerrymandering provisions, um, you know, put the electoral college in there. Then maybe you do some kind of healthcare thing, whether it's some movement towards single payer or even a smaller scale thing, whether it's- No, 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 so that's, you're fine with the single payer. That's good, single payer, yep. <laughs> and and then, then you have some kind of climate change proposal. Yep, Green New Deal. All right, so you're going to have you're going to have this list of priorities, all of which are riding on the premise that you're willing to break the filibuster for it. And my point is, you're going to go to the trouble of getting rid of the filibuster and enacting all these big, very positive, you know, um, uh, landmark pieces right. of legislation. You better, as the sort of caboose on this train, you know. You better sort of safeguard it against judicial review. Yeah, you better have the courts get your back. Yeah, so they don't strike it down. Yeah, you want your job guarantee, you want your UBI, you want your whatever. That the, 
all that stuff is under threat immediately upon passage from all kinds of bad faith conservative you know legal challenges in the courts that will now be and they'll take it all to texas and fight it through up through the fifth circuit get a favorable ruling out of the fifth circuit take it to the supreme court and we have and again we'll be on our hands and knees praying that you know john roberts decides that this is not you know a good a good time to um uh to behave in the way that leonard leo wants him to behave and so as a last act you know eighth or ninth on that list of you know your year one agenda that you're getting thanks to having a, a 51 vote standard you absolutely need to have a strategy for how you're going to um safeguard those proposals from the from the um clutches of neil gorsuch and brett kavanaugh so judicial reform absolutely would you could put it as part of that democracy reform pro, uh, proposal or you could make it a standalone proposal at the end of that line of of, uh, of reform ideas. But yeah, the idea that you would go to all this trouble, you campaign on all this stuff, you get rid of, you change the rules of the Senate in order to pass it, and then you would let, you know, John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh play God with the fate of all those ideas. We can't have it. Yeah, the people forget this, but um, the, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution about how the federal court should be organized. That's all just been passed by various laws. And they've changed the number of circuits. They've changed the number of justices on the Supreme Court. They did it to Andrew Johnson back in the day. They changed the number of justices specifically to prevent him from being able to appoint some. Um, yeah, the, um, number of judges and, on this, the number of justices on the Supreme Court has changed under five different presidents. And you're right, when you contemplate the, the lower courts, the number of judges across the entire federal judiciary changes sort of routinely. It changes roughly every 30 or so years because of workload and, and wanting to not have judges be overburdened. And so they're adding that we've added judges at the lower court level routinely throughout our history. And there's actually a pending proposal that is nonpartisan, that is from the bureaucratic office of the administrative office of the courts that contemplates adding 60 plus seats across the federal judiciary at the lower court level right now. So you could totally take that and be non-controversial in doing so and pushing that through. And um, and, you're, and it, you're absolutely right. It would require no change in the Constitution to add seats at the level of even the Supreme Court because that's not spelled out in the Constitution. And there's, um, you know, the one proposal that, you hear people say, well, that would require a change in the, in the Constitution as term limits, but there's actually an argument that even that could be done legislatively, because while it's true that the Constitution says that judges get life tenure, it doesn't specify on which court they get to serve for life. So in other words, you could have somebody that serves an 18-year term, say, on the Supreme Court, Interesting. And, then rather, and then rather than mandate retirement after 18 years, you roll them onto a lower court so they remain a federal judge for life, but there's nothing that guarantees that they have to serve on the Supreme Court for life. They can rotate huh. an appeals court. And so that's one way you could potentially legislate a term limits change. So our, you know, what we've, in general, we're just trying to foment a discussion that encourages candidates to contemplate this problem and put out their own proposals. So we're not trying to um, necessarily nitpick like Pete Buttigieg's proposal versus um, Bernie, who's argued for rotating appeals court judges onto the court. Um, we want people to be imaginative. We don't want to penalize people for having one idea versus another. What sure. we want to see from the field is that they're willing to say that the status quo is unacceptable and I want to structurally reform the court, at least in some way.
Um, but I think ultimately <clears throat> the, the, the wrong that was done in terms of the stolen seat that was held open for Trump to fill with Neil Gorsuch, you cannot just act like that didn't happen and, and then say that we're going to fix things going forward. If you want to police bad behavior, if you want to enforce norms, there needs to be some kind of there needs to be some kind of official step taken that says that that's not that's not okay. You don't just get to pocket the gains from that bad act for for the rest of time. You know, Brian, you, you yeah. can't bring a knife to a gunfight, and so it's it's time to uh, get ready. You know, battle somebody. Battle the- a colleague, a colleague of mine that works on these issues, likened it to me and said, "Somebody, a pickpocket comes along and steals your wallet out of your pocket." Uh, you don't go and then say, all right, no more stealing of wallets. <laughs> Let the guy run off with your wallet. You go and retrieve your wallet, get your wallet back. And then you <laughs> then you attempt to put in reforms to make sure that no more wallets are henceforth stolen. But we can't let Mitch McConnell essentially run off with the wallet and then have some kind of proposal that says, well, from now on, everything's going to be on the up and up. I think you need to do something that answers that that sort of that show of cynicism, bad faith, and upending of democratic norms. And then you have to have something that enforces a system where that can't happen again in the future. We're with you. Um, well, you know, you know, Saul became Saint Paul, and uh, it seems like you found you you found the uh, the right side of things here, being a, a true lefty now. So we we highly respect that that shift. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll just let I'll just let that go. <laughs> Thank, thank you guys for having uh, we, me. We, we, yeah, we kid, we tease, you know. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming on. I think, um, you know, I'd like to say that I don't, I don't think that I have shifted in anything that I believe. I think I've just, you know, in running an organization, you get to speak for yourself and more uh, in a way mm, that that's you fair. for others. And also, um, yeah, I think that these are that some that some of what I'm saying is born of experience without which. Right. Without right. which I wouldn't have come to these realizations. So I can't, you know, I, I think that I'm proud of every place I've worked up till now, and a lot of it has informed what I believe today. And tactically, sure. tactically, I've sort of um, absorbed a lot of lessons from the jobs I've had in the past. So, you know, Fair. I wouldn't where I am now if I if I didn't have the path I had. Absolutely, yeah. No disrespect yeah. meant. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I think you guys having me on. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Okay, take care. Take care. Take care. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going. <laughs>